So we're continuing on in our study of the doctrines of grace. <clears throat> Last time we met, which seems like so long ago to me, um, we began to look at, we did the introduction to unconditional election. And we are continuing on in that. We will be speaking on unconditional election for some time. It'll take a while to unpack everything there is to unpack, and we still won't unpack at all. Um, but now we're going to move into the uh, topic of proof from Scripture for unconditional election. And the first question that we should always ask when we're dealing with uh, biblical doctrine is, do we find this doctrine taught in the Scriptures? And as we discovered, or as basically I just shortly mentioned it last time, um, we do find unconditional election in the Bible. We find it throughout the Bible. So this is, uh, when, we, when we talk about proof from Scripture, um, this is uh, a very wide topic, and I could just recite passage after passage after passage, um, which I would prefer not to do because it would just, you'd be just drinking from a, a fire hose um, this morning. So what we're going to do is um, we're going to look at what has been called the most extensive treatment of unconditional election in the Bible, and that's Paul's exposition of this in Romans chapter 9. And James Montgomery Boyce, a very fine theologian and commenter, um, he thinks that Romans 9, specifically verses 6 through 18, is the most important passage uh, in that chapter, which is the most important chapter on unconditional election. So we're narrowing it down to these few verses that we're going to really concentrate on and, and see what God's word has to reveal to us on this topic. So remember that um, we don't weigh biblical doctrine based on the amount of passages we find that support it. If God's word states something that is so, and it states it just once, we need to pay attention to that. But especially when we find a doctrine or we find uh, a truth repeated, God's trying to get our attention on this. So, you know, we're going to focus on this, on this one passage, really, uh, but we're not ignoring others. And I know that many of you will, will make connections in your minds of other passages, which is wonderful. Um, but due to time constraints, you know, I'm just going to try and limit it somewhat so um, we can move on and explore other things in the doctrines of grace. So turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and I'm going to start reading at verse 6, and I'm going to read through verse 18, and I ask that you follow along with me. And then we'll go back and we'll unpack this. We'll look at it in greater detail. So here we have Paul writing to the church at Rome. And in chapter 6, excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 9, Paul says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, 
About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they had, were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So Boyce characterizes this as one of the most difficult sections in the entire Bible. He thinks that it's more difficult than the, uh, some of the, the somewhat complicated and uh, potentially confusing sections in Daniel and Revelation that deal with prophecy of future events and are speaking in symbolic language of apocalyptic literature. He finds this to be more challenging, which... I find very interesting because, frankly, when we read the symbology in Daniel or in Revelation, as, as Pastor Steve's been going uh, through on uh, Sunday evenings, um, it can be difficult. It can be confusing, and it's often misinterpreted. So what is, what is Boyce saying here? Why does he think that this is a more difficult passage? Well, he makes two points as to why he says this. It, because it deals with two related matters that are difficult for us to understand. First, he talks about the, uh, and Paul's mentioning this, um, Boyce points out there's the negative counterpart to election in this passage. This is the doctrine of reprobation. Now, reprobation refers to God's passing over those that are not elected to salvation. And it's an important topic, and we're going to look at this later, reprobation later in greater detail. So we're not skipping over it. Um, so that's one, that's one issue that Paul's dealing with. The second issue is the, the idea, the question really, is God right in electing some and passing over others? Now, this is, uh, this is an, an area in theology that's called theodicy. It's a fancy theological term, and it comes from two words, God, theos, and dike, meaning just or right. So theodicy really is our attempt to vindicate the justice of God in his actions. So it's, it's our attempt to explain to others, as well as to ourselves, how is it that God acts in certain ways that are difficult perhaps for us to understand, but God is always just, he's always righteous, he's always good, he's always loving? How do we, how do we understand these things? So theodicy is, uh, is an important topic. And so this is what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with um, reprobation and theodicy in this passage that we just read. So the question being posed, really, is God right to choose some and pass over 
others. Choose some, but not others. God's choosing. At this point, in chapter 9, it's important to realize that what Paul is dealing with is he's explaining why all Jews are not saved. And why the fact that all Jews are not saved does not mean that God's purposes for Israel have failed. God has not failed Israel. Israel has not failed God in the way we might think. And the reason for this is that God does not choose everybody, and he never has. He does not even choose all of the Jews. I think this is very clear when we read scriptures, when we see the rebellion in Israel, when we see the opposition in Jerusalem that that Jesus faced. So this is the meaning of Paul's opening statement. If you look again at at Romans 9 and verses 6 through 7, I'm going to read that again, and we're going to look at that carefully. Paul writes, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So what Paul is saying here and I think it's really, it's pretty clear when we, when we break it down, you know, maybe a verse or a sentence or two at a time, you know, because Paul, man, Paul gets really deep, doesn't he? And he can be hard to follow because it's one major thought after another, and he, he's making an argument, but if we just read it through quickly as we are wont to do many times, we miss all the intricacies of Paul's argument. So it's very helpful to just to break it down and just take a little bite at a time, you know, and, and chew on it and say, well, what exactly is he saying here? So Paul is saying that not everyone who descended physically from Israel or Jacob, who's the, you know, the, the, the patriotic uh, grandson of Abraham and father of the 12 tribes of Israel, as many of you know, that, that Israel... Not everyone who's descended physically in the lineage, the physical lineage from this man is a member of the true elected spiritual Israel of God. They very well may be, in fact they are, members of the, 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 the physical tribe, the ethnic tribe of Israel. But Paul makes a differentiation that, that we should make note of between spiritual Israel and physical Israel. Israel. And in the verses that follow, Paul demonstrates that the three patriarchs of Israel, which are Abraham, his son Isaac, and his son Jacob, also known as Israel, became what they were by election. God chose them. They were elected for the roles that they played. And others were not given this privilege. They were passed over. Just these three men were chosen. So let's look at Abraham first. He was the first patriarch. In essence, the founding father of Israel. He comes from pagan background. He has a pagan ancestry. He was born in the city of Ur in Mesopotamia, right? And he had no knowledge of the true God because no one in Ur had knowledge of the true God. He did not grow up in a Jewish culture. There was no one teaching him Torah. There was no revelation from the one true God to the people living in Ur in Mesopotamia. 
In fact, Joshua, the book of Joshua, uh, chapter 24, verse 2, tells us that Abraham's family were pagan worshipers. They worshipped what we would call idols. And, and it's written in that, that uh, verse in Joshua. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, they served other gods. And idols continued to be possessed and valued in Abraham's family after Abraham was called out of Mesopotamia. We see in Genesis chapter 31, Rachel, Jacob's wife, stole her father's teraphim, the household gods, the family idols. She stole them from her father and hid them. God's call of Abraham is clearly recorded in Genesis chapter 12. Every knowledgeable Jew today and in times past would have to confess that Jewish history began with that election of Abraham, that this one man chosen by God for no other reason than it pleased God to choose this man. This is where Jewish ancestry, this is where Jewish history began with the patriarch Abraham. Then his son, Isaac. We'll talk about him because some may argue that Abraham is an example, or using him as an example, is besides the point, beside the point. Because God has to start somewhere, right? So God just picked this guy. Have to start somewhere, might as well be him. And most will concede that the election by God of the nation of Israel to some specific destiny apart from other nations is very clear in the Old Testament. And it's very clear in Jewish thought that they are a people set, selected, set apart. They are a chosen people. Even, well, mo most Jews are not religious today, but they, even the non-religious Jews would acknowledge that that is the Jewish tradition. They may not necessarily agree with it, but they would acknowledge that tradition. So here's the real issue that we're talking about. <clears throat> we're all descendants of Abraham, the Jews, saved by reason of being his offspring. The fact that they happen to be born in, in secular human thought. You just happen to be born to a person who was born to this person and these parents, yada, yada, all the way back to Abraham. Just happened to happen. Were they saved because of that fact? Or does selection and rejection continue after the initial choice of Abraham? God started the choice there. Does it continue? That's what we need to investigate. That's what we need to find out. Does God continue, to this day, continue to choose some, but not all for salvation? Both Jews and Gentiles but not all from either category. Some from the Jews, some from the Gentiles, but some in both categories are passed over. Is that what we are seeing going on? What does the Bible tell us about that? And since that really is the actual issue, Paul begins his actual argument in this passage that we looked at in verse 7. So look at verse 7. Here's Paul's argument. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So the point that Paul is making here is that Abraham, remember, had another son, didn't he? Ishmael, begotten of Hagar, 13 years before the birth of Isaac. Ishmael was Abraham's first son, humanly speaking. But Ishmael was passed over. Ishmael was not chosen. Ishmael certainly was Abraham's physical descendant. He was of Abraham. He was physical in the physical lineage. But Ishmael was not a child of promise. That phrase that Paul is using very pointedly in these verses. Verse 8, let's go on and look at this. This means that it is not, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So children of the flesh, that would be Ishmael. Children of promise, that's somebody different. So Paul's making a contrast here between these two groups, children of the flesh and children of the promise. And the contrast, this contrast shows that there's more going on than God merely electing Isaac and passing over Ishmael. It's not just about these two young boys. God's choice of Isaac involved a supernatural intervention in the case of his conception, how his birth came about. So Ishmael, think about Ishmael. He's born of Abraham's human sexual powers. Remember, Hagar was given to uh, Abraham, and uh, he went in uh, to be with her, and she conceived Ishmael. So it's just Abraham and Hagar's doing. But Isaac, Isaac is different, isn't he? 13 years later, born when Abraham and Sarah both were past the age of conception. They were too old to have children. There's no way in the world that this would happen. No way in the world. But it does happen because Isaac is conceived of these two, what we may call old people, based on God's promise that Abraham would have a son through Sarah. It's God's supernatural intervention that brings this about. It's the same with our spiritual conception and our new birth as followers of Christ, as Christians. It is a supernatural event. We cannot engender, we cannot bring about, we cannot make spiritual life in ourselves any more so than elderly Abraham and elderly Sarah could have conceived a, bo a, a, a boy just based on human biological reproduction. Ephesians 2.1 says we are spiritually dead in our sins. And this dead person cannot do anything, can't do anything at all. And in order for a spiritually dead person to come alive, God must act. God must work a miracle, what we call a miracle. This is what the Holy Spirit does for God's elect. He works a miracle in us. He changes us. He changes our hearts. We are regenerated. We are given a new birth. Once dead, now we are fully alive, physically and spiritually. 
Now what about Jacob, the next of the patriarchs? Paul's opponents, to his argument, could have another objection, arguing that Ishmael, the firstborn of Abraham, was not chosen because he was not fully Jewish. His mother was not a Jew, was she? She was an Egyptian. Israelite descent is matrilinear. It comes from the mother. So you could argue and have a very good point of saying that uh, this boy didn't fit because his mom wasn't a Jew. So he couldn't, uh, he couldn't be a representative of the Jews. So in answer to this objection, Paul proceeds now to the third generation of election, Rebekah's twins, Jacob and Esau. Basically what Paul's saying is, okay, look at Abraham. Okay, that's not good enough for you. Okay, look at Jacob. Okay, that's not good enough for you. Now we're going to talk about Jacob and Esau. Three cases he's presenting. Think of it like in a court of law, like a trial. He is presenting evidence, and he's presenting it piece by piece to the jury, those reading or hearing his word. And the evidence mounts in each case and becomes irrefutable. One piece of evidence we could say, well, circumstantial or, yeah, just, just, just a, a coincidence or whatever. Second piece of evidence, we look at that and we think, starting to make a really good case here. You know, I've got to think about this. Third piece of evidence, and it's like, whew, this is what we would call a slam dunk case. It's like it's even, even the baby just out of law school, assistant DA walking in with, with this type of evidence is going to sway a jury. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Maybe I haven't swayed you yet. So um, I'm taking the part of the baby assistant DA just out of law school and talking when I shouldn't talk about things I shouldn't talk about yet. So, okay, back to Scripture. Paul's phrase in verse 10, look at verse 10. He starts that off and he says, not only so, right? He's showing that he's continuing his argument here. The argument continues. Reading on. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger. Now this is a very effective point. It's a very effective example because it proves everything that Paul needed to make his point. Jacob and Esau were born of the same parents. They're twins, right? So we have the necessary, the needed Jewish ancestry here. So selection based on better ancestry, you know, is completely eliminated. The case of Ishmael is, is thrown out. Okay, you made, a, you made your point, uh, Mr. Opponent, with Ishmael. We see why that doesn't work, but look. Look at this. doesn't apply here. And the choice of Jacob over Esau went against the normal standard. It went against the cultural norm of the time. The cultural norm of the time is something called primogeniture, which means the oldest son gets the best blessings. He gets the double blessings. Everything goes to the oldest. 
And if you're not the oldest, you just lose out. That's just the way it is. And it's thought in ancient Jewish culture as well as pagan cultures, well, that's God at work making a choice. Or the gods, if you're a pagan. The gods are at work making a choice. You are blessed because you were firstborn. And you get all the good stuff. And, you know, you're secondborn. Well, God or the gods just didn't love you. That's that. What more can we say? You know, don't argue with me. Argue with them. But anyway, (laughs) this turns that entirely on its head. That's what's crazy about it. It does not abide by societal rules. Even though they were twins, Scripture explicitly states that Esau was born first. Think about that in the story, right? Why is it that such pains are taken to point that out? To us, it may not mean that much because we don't have the issue of primogeniture in our society, right? Everybody must be treated equally. We must have equality. Or even better yet, in our age, equity, right? And we need equity. And this is not equitable. This is not equal. How dare this happen? But it did. And we're told it did for a reason. So in spite of Esau being firstborn, Jacob was chosen. And nothing explains this except God's right to decree the destinies of the people he chooses. Now notice there is nothing that was humanly done in this birth process, in the conception process. Mom and dad didn't decide, let's have twins. Mom's giving birth. She just didn't decide, you know what? Um, I want this one to be born first and the other one's just going to have to wait. The ladies helping at the birth, they had nothing to do with this. This is all either happenstance or God at work. God specifically choosing what happens. And we know from reading the Bible, from reading God's revealed word, that he decrees everything. This is part of God's decree. So the choice of of, Jacob was made before either child had the opportunity to do good or bad. It's not as though God's looking down and he's like, you know what, this Esau, he's a bad character. I'm not choosing him, I'm choosing Jacob. Paul and Genesis specifically states that this happened before the boys could do anything humanly. This means, and we should note this very well, that election cannot be, cannot be based on anything done by us. It is not what we do. Moreover, Paul argues that the choice of Jacob rather than Esau was made specifically to teach election to God's people. That it, this happened so we would learn from it. God uses this as an example, and he inspires biblical writers to write about it, to pass it down to us so that we learn from it. Look at verse 11. That's what Paul says, very specific about it. 
though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Him who calls, that's God. This means that God made his choice of Rebekah's sons before they were born to show that his election is apart from anything a human being may do or may not do. Arthur W. Pink, he writes in um, his treatise on the God of Jacob. He says, Jacob supplies us with the clearest and most unmistakable illustration of God's sovereign election. Sovereign election. Sovereign meaning God is free to do whatever he wants. He is not beholden to any human being when he makes his decisions. He is sovereign. Pink goes on. The case of Jacob gives the most emphatic refutation to the theory that God's choice is dependent upon something in the creature, something either actually actual or foreseen. In other words, Pink is saying, God is not looking ahead into the future to see what these, what these two boys do or what anyone chosen by him may do in the future. And then you know, then rolling everything back and making his decisions based on what humans do. No, Pink is absolutely arguing against that. And the case of Jacob, he goes on to say, proves conclusively that God's choice is, one, entirely sovereign. Two, wholly gratuitous, which means unearned, completely unearned and freely given. And three, based upon nothing but God's own good pleasure. So, us, taking our cue from Paul, the best place to begin a discussion on election is the fact of election itself. And going back to, to James Montgomery Boyce, he says the reasons for this are obvious. Well, they're obvious once you, you hear them. Or in my case, once I read them, it's like, oh yeah, that's obvious. First of all, Boyce says, there's no sense arguing over the justice of God in electing some to salvation and passing over others if we are not convinced, first of all, that he does just that. If you're not convinced that God chooses and passes over, then you shouldn't even be in the argument. It doesn't even apply to you. Don't, don't even get started on God's justice because you're denying that this even occurs. So just basically Boyce is saying, leave it alone. You don't understand, if you don't understand it, you know, don't get sidetracked. And often when we get into discussions with others, we get sidetracked, don't we? And there are people that are very good at doing that, and they will attempt to sidetrack you in an argument. Next thing you know, you're off on some rabbit trail, and you're down deep in some rabbit warren in a rabbit hutch. You don't know how to get out of there. So he's saying that it just stops right there, basically. And secondly... If we are convinced that God does, does elect some to salvation, and Paul insists that God does exactly that, then we'll, we'll approach even the theodicy question differently. Remember theodicy, the, the um, uh, vindicating God's justice in his actions. We will, we will approach this issue in order to find understanding rather than arrogantly trying to prove that God cannot do what the Bible clearly teaches he does. It's kind of some presupposition in that, isn't there? 
God's word says it. We, we should accept that. And once we accept it, then we can understand it a bit better. But we're going to look at other, other ways to think about this also. So if you're thinking, well, Ken, you're not really making an argument that's convincing me, hang on. This is, we're, we're just getting started. We're going to go uh, quite a ways in this whole argument. And we, you know, we'll just, then we put everything together, right, once we, we hear it all. So to seek understanding is one thing. God urges us to seek understanding. It's, he's not saying, it's my word, just believe it, don't even think about it. No, God doesn't say that. God's created us with minds. He's gifted us with intellect. Some of us more than others. And the marvelous thing, as we all know about the gospel message, is that it can be understood by our children. And yet it's something that some of the brightest minds that we know delve into very, very deeply, and they get into areas that we can barely understand. It's like, yeah, I'll, I'll follow along with this argument. Oh, I lost the argument already, but maybe I'll pick some stuff up you know, as we go along. We are to use our minds. So thinking about this and thinking about it deeply is not only good, but I, but I suggest it's exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to think about it deeply. And if we struggle with it, that's okay. And even if we question it, if we don't understand it and we're asking questions, that's allowable. There's plenty of instances in the Bible where people ask God questions and God responds. But to demand that God conforms to our limited insights into what is just or right is another matter entirely. Then we're supplanting God's sovereignty, right? We're, we're, we're trying to impose our sovereignty on the issue, which we, we absolutely should not do. As long as we believe that God exercises any control over history or the lives of people, then we must come to terms with the doctrine of election in one way or the other. Now, Every Christian I think that I've ever met, I've had any discussion with about this sort of stuff, and you guys think about this, about people you've talked to, every sort of Christian, no matter what their background or their theological point of view, their doctrinal beliefs, does believe that God works, right? That God does work in our world, that God does make decisions, and then give thanks for that. But then the human tendency is we need to pull back from that because I got I got to keep control over you know this stuff. This is this is mine, you know. And so th th this is the struggle. It's it, we go back to the radical inability that we talked about, right? We we have a problem giving up control. And why is this doctrine of election? Why is it inescapable? Think about this. When Jesus called his first disciples, how many did he call? He called 12, right? He didn't call 13. He didn't call 11. He called 12. Just happenstance? Just 12 happened to work? You know? Certainly, there were many other people in Judea and Galilee that could have benefited by accompanying the Lord doing his three years of earthly ministry. Who would not have benefited from that? 
Could you imagine that opportunity? Yet our Lord chose only these 12 men. Not that, well, you know, I didn't pick this guy, Moshi, over here. And Moshi really needs to hear what I have to say. So Moshi, come on. You know, you'll, be, you'll be number 13. No, for some reason the Lord only chose these 12. Chosen specifically, specifically by him. John tells us in, in, in chapter 15, verse 16, our Lord says to his disciples, to his inner band, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. A specific choice, a specific election for a specific reason. Not just, hey, you came across my path at the time when I felt like, you know, I needed um, some dudes with me. No, I chose you. I selected you. I appointed you. Think of the, 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 the depth of that term right there, being appointed by the Lord for a specific purpose to bear Fruit. Maybe Moshe wasn't going to bear fruit. The Lord would know. That's why Moshe didn't get chosen. John 6, 70. Again, Jesus speaking. Jesus answers them and said, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Even the betrayer is chosen by the Lord for a reason. Not to bear fruit, but fruit would come from the actions of this betrayer, would it not? We celebrate that today. We celebrate the fact that our Lord is risen. It was part of the grand plan of salvation that was formulated by our triune God before the creation of the world. And then when Jesus sent them out to preach the gospel, think about this. They each went one way rather than another. Philip went to Samaria. Barnabas went to Antioch. Then Paul and Barnabas went to Asia Minor. Then Paul and others went to Greece, then Italy, and then further west. In each case, a specific choice was made. And we read in Acts how the Holy Spirit led in these choices, right? When Paul was prevented from going to Asia Minor, instead told to go to Greece, to Macedonia, northern, northern Greece. If God was directing his servants in any way, as virtually every Christian believes that he does, then God was choosing that some should hear the gospel rather than others. Twelve men sent out different places. Where they were sent, God was decreeing that is where the gospel will be heard at this point in human history. This is a form of election. God's deciding who is going to hear his word. If you, if I, if we choose or feel led to share the gospel with someone, there's the inescapable fact that you are speaking to one certain person and not another. You're being led or you chose to share the gospel with this one person and not these others. In every gospel encounter, there are literally millions of people who are passed by. Election is an inescapable fact of the finite human life and history. 
Think about where and when we live. Is it an accident or is it a chance? The fact that you were born in a land where Christianity is preached, is that just your good fortune? The fact that you were not born in a land where Christianity is outlawed and forbidden and no one knows the gospel, is that just your good fortune that that didn't happen to you? Or is it God's decree? Did God place you here at this time in this place for his good purposes? If you have any doubts as to the answer, I'll give you a hint. Yes, it's the latter. We are blessed. We are elect. We are elect in many ways. And we're going to look at that. There's more than one form of election. But we're, we're dealing with the most important form of election, the election to salvation. But there are other, there are other things that we'll, we'll, we'll touch on briefly, and I don't think we're going to get to that today. But to wrap this up, Think about this, and this is just, this just blows me away. This is just so marvelous. It is for the sake of the elect that God governs the entire course of history. If you think that you're not important to God, look back in history. Go to the library, to the history section, look at the volumes of history, and realize that all of that occurred because of you being God's elect of me being God's elect, of us being God's elect, that God has decreed all of these events to bring us here at this point in time. Think how many things had to happen for us to be here, for us to be born, for our parents to have been born, for our grandparents to have been born, for our ancestors to come to this country. It just blows your mind. And it's all in God's control. In a mark, Chapter 13, verse 20. It says, If the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. For the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now, this is speaking of the coming destruction of Jerusalem. God is thinking of his very elect when he's bringing judgment on those he has passed over. And when Jesus spoke of the salt of the earth and the light of the world in the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 4 and 5, he was speaking of who? God's elect people. Not just, not just the, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the good people. You know, he's a good guy. He, she, she's good people. No, he's speaking about the elect, God's elect in, in this instance. And as far as world history goes, it is through these few and the, and the elect that many are blessed. Take, for example, the, the account of Joseph. God blessed the household of Potiphar for Joseph's sake. Joseph is elect. Potiphar was passed over. But Potiphar is blessed through Joseph. If ten righteous people had been found in Sodom, the Lord says the city would have been saved. And the fact that there were not 10 righteous people in that wicked city, was that a surprise to God? Did it have to be pointed out to him? No, he knew. As Abraham went down that list, would you save it for 50? Would you save it for 40? Would you? God knew exactly how many righteous people were there. And the righteous 
person in his family was saved from Sodom. There was one. Lot. Being elected includes the opportunity of hearing the gospel and receiving the gifts of grace. You're here this morning. You're elected to be here this morning. You're elected to hear the means of grace. You're elected to hear the preaching of the word. It's not an accident. If you are not a follower of Christ, if you are not in Christ, if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, I suggest to you there's a very, very good reason that you are here today. It is part of God's decision-making. It is part of his decree. It's not just an accident. And without these means of grace, the great end of election could not be attained. The elect are elected to all that is included in the idea of human life. All of it. God just doesn't have a little slice of our existence. He has all of our existence. He holds all of it in his hand. It's all decreed. And as I said, we're going to speak next time we meet about the different forms of election. But for now, I think this is a good place to to stop. Uh, Thank you for your attention. Please join me in a word of prayer before we take a break, before the main preaching. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your word. Father, we give thanks for your decree of election. Lord, even though it's somewhat difficult for us to understand, we have questions, Lord, and we we want to know more about it, Lord, and and help us in the future to to explore this, Lord. But we we give thanks for it because we know everything that comes from you is good. It is meant for our good. It is meant to bless us. It is meant to bless the world. Lord, just open our hearts and minds to understand that. And bless the rest of the day, Father, as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. Father, bless Pastor Steve as he comes up and he delivers the word. And bless Pastor Mike as he um, delivers the music that we may lift our voices in praise to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.